This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about um, the Lenore Hamburger Lectureship. It was established by Dr. Hamburger in 1999. Um, Dr. Hamburger would have been 96 years old today, um, but he actually passed away five, uh, five years ago. He was Professor Emeritus um, for really the more than 20 years that I knew him. Um, I actually met him first when I was an allergy fellow here at UCSD. I'm not going to say how many years ago. But the first time we spoke, um, he uh, is really into history, and he told me all about the pediatric allergy program here and talked about all the fellows he trained and had all kinds of interesting stories. And those of you who do know him know he, he loved to tell stories. I asked him a bunch of questions because I was sort of interested. And then after our little meeting for about 15 minutes, he said, Hal, you're going to be the division chief here one day. And I said, you are absolutely crazy. I just finished being chief, of, uh, chief resident, and I have no interest in being chief of anything, let alone a division. I guess he wasn't crazy. Um, so anyway, let me tell you a bit about him. He was born in New York, um, and before attending college, he was a fighter pilot in World War II and actually um, was actually officially reported missing in action for, um, for a period of time. Um, he attended UNC for college, uh, then he went to Yale Medical School, and then he was on the faculty at Yale. And then he was invited out here in the early 1960s to start the UCSD Medical School. Um, so he was actually the assistant dean of the School of Medicine in 1964. Um, he, uh, as I said, was an allergist immunologist. His research interest was on the prevention and treatment of IgE-mediated diseases. Um, he served as the first chief of the Division of Pediatric Immunology and Allergy between 1970 and 1990. And he really established one of the preeminent pediatric allergy training programs in the country and therefore was responsible for training really dozens of allergist immunologists that have spread all over the country. Um, and... Uh, he um, therefore had a lot of significant impact on the specialty. Um, he retired from the university in 1990 and then became emeritus professor, but didn't slow down at all. Um, when I met him, he was very involved in teaching uh, medical students, residents, fellows, um, and, and really continued that um, all the way throughout um, his career. Um, but he also had a particular interest um, in health disparities and actually was a real supporter of universal health care um, in this country. Um, he was particularly interested in the African-American experience. Um, so in 1999, he established this Lenore Lectureship in memory of the wife of his first allergy immunology fellow, Dr. Michael Lenore, who's actually still practicing up in the Bay Area. Um, Dr. Lenore's wife, during Andrea, um, during the fellowship, actually died of a severe asthma attack. And so he established this um, in memory of her. Um, we always do this. Um, the, the themes of it are prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of asthma, allergy, and immunologic disease, and also health disparities. And um, I think you'll notice today our speaker is really perfectly fit, um, fits that, uh, that, those sort of themes. Uh, we try to make it happen every year near Martin Luther King Day. Um, over the years, we've had a number of different excellent uh, both national and local speakers. There was this one year that I filled in um, for someone who canceled for the last minute, so that's the only exception. But anyway, um, most of these lectures have been archived on UCSD TV, so you can watch them. I think the last 10 years are available to watch, um, and there's, uh, they're still very pertinent um, today. All right, so now I'll talk about our speaker. Sorry about all that. But our speaker is now that um, uh, for the 20th year of the Lenore Hamburger Lectureships is our very own Sidney Leibel. Um, he's assistant professor in the Division of Allergy, Immunology, and Rheumatology and is also co-director of the Rady Children's Severe Asthma Clinic. 
Uh, Sid was raised in Southern California, attended UCSD for undergrad, and then he went to Australia um, to Flinders University for medical school. Uh, then he went to the University of Utah for pediatric training and then St. Louis Children's Hospital for allergy training, where he stayed on faculty for a year before moving to Canada, um, where he practiced pediatrics and got a master's in public health at the University of Waterloo um, before we got him here um, to UCSD in 2015. Um, his research in the past um, has focused on pathogenesis and quality of life of food allergy. Um, today he's going to tell you about his current research interests um, involving um, asthma. Um, please welcome Dr. Sidney Leibel. Thanks, Hal, for that introduction. Um, it's fantastic to be mic'd up. I love giving talks, so if I make any errors today, they'll be there for the next 10 years. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, so it's an honor to give this talk as part of the Hamburger Lecture um, series. And given the amazing career that Dr. Hamburger had and the amazing speakers that have given this talk over the years. It's also a bit surreal for me. Um, I was an undergrad here 20 years ago, and uh, I ended up at UC San Diego, and I ended up volunteering at Radies in the emergency department as a candy striper. I don't know if you still call them that, but um, and I was just dreaming of becoming a physician. So to be here all these years later giving grand rounds is uh, fantastic, and so thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to be focusing on population health and pediatric asthma, and I'm going to be mainly looking at our region here in San Diego. Um, and so I've included a picture of this tree that's in Balboa Park. Um, you guys may be familiar with it. It's really old. It's like over 100 years old, and it's ginormous. It's like the third largest of its species in California. And it's got an amazing story behind it that I'll bring up at the end of this talk. To, I think it kind of brings everything together. This is my disclosure slide. Not much there. I don't think it directly impacts the content of this talk in any way. So I thought a bit of an outline would be helpful. So I'm going to be talking about as asthma prevalence and cost and how health disparities um, play into asthma prevalence and asthma burden. And then I'm going to talk about population health and more specifically social determinants of health and how that can help us understand why we're seeing health disparities. And then um, population health kind of gives us a framework to address these disparities. Um, and so I'm going to be talking about cases from three different communities here in our region and highlighting some of the population health uh, uh, tools and strategies that we've utilized, uh, including our, talking about our severe asthma clinic and CASA program, um, looking at the California fires that we've been having recently, and telemedicine. So if we look at asthma, it's highly prevalent in children in the United States, about 8% of the population, or 6 million children. And if you look at the most recent CDC data, that number hasn't changed very much in the last... 15 to 20 years, after almost tripling in the two decades before that. And in part because it's such a prevalent condition, there's lots, lots of costs associated with treating asthma, almost $82 billion between kids and adults in total health care expenditure. And it turns out that um, it, that cost is not equally distributed. So high-risk populations, those with moderate to severe persistent asthma that have frequent exacerbations, they end up driving about 80% of the cost. And so on the bottom chart here, you'll see this is looking at Medicaid data. On the far right in the blue, you can see the contribution of medication costs for the average patient with asthma. Um, and you can see these other um, costs here include um, ED visits, hospitalizations, and unplanned physician visits. 
And that's what we sometimes refer to as utilization. That's how I'm going to refer to uh, as utilization going forward here. And so you can see as you move to more severe forms of asthma here and more, um, sorry, less controlled asthma, that the medication costs actually stay pretty fixed. But what you see is these dramatic increases in utilization costs. And so if we go back to prevalence, we also know that asthma is not equally distributed amongst populations. We know that black children have twice the prevalence of asthma than white children. And what's interesting, if you look at the most recent um, national health interview surveys, is that if you look before, mid, before the, uh, 1995, they actually had similar prevalence, black and white children. And it's only in the last 15, 20 years that we've seen this gap. And so what that tells me is that we can't um, just ascribe this gap to genetics alone. I have to change this quickly. Um, this next uh, graph shows you what's called the Hispanic paradox, which Dr. Celadon talked a little bit about in this talk last year. But basically it shows on the bottom dotted line, Hispanic, uh, sorry, Mexican-American children actually have lower rates of asthma than white children. And if you look at the top dotted line here, um, that's Puerto Rican populations, and they have higher rates than black children. Um, in fact, they have the highest prevalence of any race or ethnicity in the country. And so they're all Hispanic, so how do we describe that? Well, I think some of it is due to ancestry, but also I think social factors are really important. And so this last chart is looking at socioeconomic status, and you can see that um, poor children have higher prevalence here on the upper line compared to the near poor and the non-poor. And socioeconomic status and race ethnicity are correlated, but they're not interchangeable. Um, and so you can also look at the last few years here that um, the gap is starting to maybe widen. We need more data points to kind of confirm that. So that's prevalence. If you look at disparity in asthma burden, it's not much better. Nationally, black children have two to three times a higher rate of hospitalization and easy visits, and they have almost a five times higher asthma mortality rate. Hispanic children similarly have higher ED visit rates, and, more, and they also have higher mortality rates than white children. So that's nationally. If we look at our own region, so looking at California data and our county in San Diego, the most recent OSHPOD data shows similar trends where black children here and Hispanic children here have higher rates than white children. You look at this bottom uh, abbreviation here, AIAN, that's Native Americans. They also have higher rates, higher, sorry, burden uh, with ER visits than um, white children. And so these trends are pretty clear. Um, but the reasons for why we're seeing them are much more complex. We know that genetics are important. Um, Loci 17Q21 has consistently been identified as an asthma susceptibility gene on GWAS studies and other genetic studies. Um, and uh, overexpression of the SNP ORMDL3 in the bronchial epithelium of mice leads to increased airway remodeling and responsiveness, and this SNP is um, expressed on that loci. And so this picture is looking at lung tissue from mice and in a mouse that overexpresses ORMDL3, you can see increased periobronchial staining of collagen, which is evidence of fibrosis. And so that's a form of airway right, remodeling compared to the wild-type mouse. And there's a lot of other genes that are also have smaller associations with asthma. Uh, but we know that asthma is not a monogenic condition. And what's probably more important is gene-environment interactions. So looking at environmental exposures, um, we know that there's a strong link between allergic sensitization and the development of asthma. 
and disadvantaged children who live in low-income housing are disproportionately exposed to indoor allergens like dust and mold, cockroaches and mildew, and that if they're sensitized to these allergens and they're re-exposed to them, that these allergies can trigger asthma attacks. Uh, we also know that outdoor pollutants are important and that low-income housing is sometimes situated close to pollution sources, so freeways, truck routes, point sources of uh, pollution like factories. And so this is a kind of summary diagram in The Lancet that was published. And you can see that down here with high exposures to pollution, you can actually these uh, exposures can lead to exacerbations. But even higher up, we can see that pollutants can um, increase sensitization to allergens. And then even higher than that, we can see that um, there is epigenetic effects on airway uh, responsiveness genes and genes involved in oxidative stress. So that's looking at sort of environmental exposures, but we also know that stress and violence exposure is important, and that poor children are more likely to be exposed to family turmoil, violence, separation like divorce, instability, and chaotic households. And so there was a study that looked at major life events in the setting of chronic stress, and they looked at children with asthma compared to those that don't. And if you look at the dark lines, the dark bars here, you can see that uh, the children that had asthma actually downregulated their beta-adrenergic and glucocorticoid receptors, while uh, children that don't have asthma upregulate these receptors. And so you can imagine that if you're a um, disadvantaged child and, you're ex and you experience sort of this chronic stress and you decrease your receptors, that when we try to treat those, um, treat an asthma attack, you may not respond as well. And maybe that's part of why we see a higher burden in this population. There's also a study that was done in part by Dr. Celadon who looked at um, epigenetic effects and he found that exposure to violence off of survey data was associated with CPG methylation and that this CPG methylation was also associated with the development of asthma in Puerto Rican children. And there's a whole host of other factors, smoking, obesity, changes in the microbiome that are all associated with socioeconomic status and race, ethnicity, and cultural practice. And so when you look at all these factors, it's hard to figure out how they're contributing to asthma disparities um, individually. But in the real world, they're likely all contributing um, in a way that I think that we can understand that easier. Why we're seeing these factors and how they interact with each other is called the social determinants of health. And so the WHO defines the social determinants of health as the conditions in which we are born, grow, live, work, and age. And it's shaped by the distribution of money, power, and resources. And so we have to face the fact that in the United States, we have a history of racism and segregation. And that that had led, has led, in part, to the, um, an unfair distribution of money, power, and resources. And that plays a large part in why we are seeing the health inequities that we have here in this country. And so <clears throat> we also have... The, so the we have, at the federal level, the Department of Health and Human Services. They have an Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion. And they set out goals and objectives um, at the federal level for disease prevention in 10-year increments called Healthy People. And we're currently in Healthy People 2020. One of the four overarching goals for Healthy People 2020 was to create social and physical environments that promote good health for all. Um, and so you know there's people that are interested in addressing social determinants of health and chronic disease like asthma. And so if you're like me and you're seeing a patient with asthma in your clinic, you have a limited time to get a history, to do an exam, maybe do some skin testing, do lung function tests if it's age appropriate, teach the resident or fellow, um, and then synthesize all that information 
and come up with a plan that works for the, the patient and the family. And so you may be aware that there's social and environmental factors that are important that I've discussed, uh, but you have a real limited capacity to be able to affect them. And so what we really need in our field is improved coordination between our medical skills and then social and community resources to improve our patients' health. And that's something that my field is starting to realize. So this is a timeline from a paper that was uh, published in one of our journals in this last year. And it shows that we've had effective clinical medications for a long time. We've had bronchodilators since the 60s and inhaled corticosteroids since the 90s. And then now we have biologic medications that target specific pathways in asthma, like anti-IgEs, since the early 2000s. And we really haven't seen the progress we wanted to see in decreasing asthma burden. And so I think there's a realization that a lot of what goes into asthma control is outside of the clinician's control. And so we need to be able to work outside of our field and work in other sectors with other sectors at the population health level if we want to be able to um, see further progress. And so population health can be um, defined as the health outcomes of a group of individuals, including the distribution of outcomes within the group. And it's driven by health determinants I just kind of talked about. And it's impacted upon by health policies and interventions meant to address those outcomes. And so I feel really fortunate to be here at Ray Children's Hospital and UC San Diego where we have access to huge population health data. And then there are lots of people and networks that are interested in, hop- in population health interventions. And so I'm going to be talking about three different cases from different communities here in our region, so City Heights, North County, and out in Imperial Valley, to highlight some of these population health tools and strategies that we have available that I've been able to be involved with, including looking at EHR administrative data, looking at air quality monitoring, multi-sector partnerships, geographic information system mapping, which I'll refer to as GIS, and telemedicine. So the first tool that I'm going to highlight is our very own EPIC electronic health record system, which some feel, when we started in 2011, led to the direct death of the patient-physician relationship. (laughs) But from a population health standpoint, it's allowed us to look at huge amounts of information and look at outcomes amongst our population and begin to prioritize areas and, and populations that we may want to intervene. And so this is looking at all ED visits and urgent care visits between 2011 and the end of 2017. And there's a couple trends that you can probably notice right off the bat. In general, we've seen more patients year after year in these facilities. And SANDAG, which is the San Diego Association of Governments, estimated that between 2004 and 2030, the population of San Diego was going to grow by a million people. And so maybe this is evidence of that population growth. We also know that RAISE is expanding its network. And so we now have urgent care facilities and satellite clinics throughout the region, spreading out into like Marietta, which is in Riverside County, and out towards um, El Centro, which is Imperial County. And so maybe this is also evidence of that expansion. The other pattern you're going to notice is sort of the seesaw pattern between winters and summers, where we see up to 600 visits per day in, the faci- in these facilities um, in the winter and more like 400 in the summer. And so you could probably confidently speculate that this is due to viral respiratory season. And when you actually look at respiratory visits in the blue there, as defined as cough, wheeze, or shortness of breath, you can see that that pattern is recapitulated. And so in addition to looking at long-term trends, you can also look at a snapshot of a specific year. So this is looking at 2017. We set out almost 
we saw over 150,000 visits in the ED and in the urgent care facilities in that year. And we are a children's hospital network, and so we see mainly children, and so the average age is around six years of age. We predominantly see a Medi-Cal population in those facilities, almost 70%. And there we also see commercial plans, and we see military insurance, which makes sense given the military presence here in San Diego. We also see a fair amount of Spanish speakers, um, which makes sense as well given our proximity to the border and our history with Mexico. And so in addition to demographic information, we can also tie it into clinical data. And so one of our informaticists at Radies was able to look at all patients that showed up in the Radi ED with a diagnosis of asthma and then tie that to the zip codes that they came from. And when you did that, these five zip codes came up. And so on this map here, I put a pin drop on 92105, which is City Heights. And these are, these are corrected for, for population of the, these areas. And what you'll notice about the other four zip codes is that they're all contiguous with each other. And so this all represents one area in San Diego that most of our patients that are showing up in the ED with asthma are coming from. And it's, and it's the mid-city and southeast San Diego area. And so it turns out that if you are an ED facility in the state of California, you're required to send a lot of this clinical data to the state. And then it becomes publicly available. And so there are organizations and agencies um, that are interested in these, this sort of clinical data or this information, and then they overlay it with other data sources that they have, like um, the U.S. Census and uh, environmental data. And that's something that the California EPA has done. And so they have like an environmental justice program that's interested in looking at all these different data sources and overlapping them and looking for vulnerable populations that may be amenable to social and environmental interventions. And they put together this awesome tool called um, Cal EPA, sorry, called the Cal Envirus Screen 3.0. It took them three tries to get it right. Um, and so what you're looking at right now is all census tracts in San Diego and Imperial County. And the indicator that we're looking at right now is poverty, as defined as the percent of, in that census tract that lives below the federal poverty limit. And then they take that, um, they rank that census tract against the other 8,000 census tracts in the state of California and give it a percentile. And so the darker the shading, the higher the percentile, the higher level of poverty. And I'm going to highlight two areas, the mid-city and southeast San Diego area that I just talked about, and then this area out here in Imperial Valley, which includes Brawley and El Centro. And so I mentioned that Cal EPA is also interested in looking at asthma. It's one of three disease conditions that they actually look at. And they're interested in it because it is susceptible to social factors and environmental factors. And so their indicator for this is uh, number of ED visits per 10,000 population. They rank them, and so darker shading is higher asthma burden. And I'm going to circle the same areas that I showed for poverty. And so you can see that there's significant overlap. And so this is one of the things I really like about GIS is that it takes huge amounts of data and overlays them and, and displays them visually in a way that's easy to understand and so you can pick up patterns pretty quickly and easily. And so I'm going to zoom into one of those communities um, in, uh, in Mid-City called City Heights. Um, City Heights is a very vibrant part of San Diego. There's over 70 languages spoken there. It has a huge Hispanic population, but it also has a huge uh, Vietnamese population, East African, African-American population. It's a place where refugees have settled over the decades. And so culturally, there's a lot going on. But it also has high levels of poverty and um, issues with education and violence. 
and it has the highest asthma morbidity rate in the whole entire county, almost twice that of any other part of the county. And so with that background, I'll bring up our first case, who's a nine-year-old Hispanic female from City Heights. Asthma's been poorly controlled, and she's on a medium dose of our inhaled corticosteroids. She's had three ED visits in the last six months, and she has other issues at school. She has issues with attention, and she's getting bullied. And so given what I've just been talking about, how do we approach a patient like this? So one of the first things that Dr. Hoffman asked me and Dr. Bob Gain to do when we started here was to restart the severe asthma clinic that was previously ran by John Bastian. So it was very big shoes for us to fill. And we started seeing high-risk patients that had frequent ER visits and hospitalizations. We took some of the more successful parts of Dr. Bastian's clinic, including getting pharmacy involved really early. And so our pharmacists actually call the patient's pharmacy and get a three-month fill history on the asthma medications. So we at least know before we see the patient if they've been filling their medicines and whether adherence is an issue. We were also fortunate to have Dr. Matea Cohen join us from pulmonary. And we more deeply um, involved our respiratory therapists and nurses in case conferencing on these patients to give us a true multidisciplinary approach to the patient. And so the goals for the clinic are really to reduce medical, psychosocial, and economic impacts associated with childhood asthma. And we need to consider sort of the psychosocial and environmental factors that are important, and I've listed them here. We want to deal with asthma triggers and barriers in the home, school, and community with respect to culture, language, and beliefs. And so pretty early on, we had a community asthma forum where we invited different community organizations to come and network with us and brainstorm on ways to best address our population. We came up with the idea pretty early to do asthma home visits where we would address, go into the home and look for asthma triggers and reinforce education and be able to provide resources. We based our model off a successful model in um, Boston called the Community Asthma Initiative where they did prioritize home education and environmental remediation. And they showed dramatic drops in ED visits and admissions. We have medications that can't do this. Um, and so it's been, it was a very effective um, intervention for them. There's a whole host of other programs now that have been successful. And the key themes from them are they tend to target high-risk patients, they provide education, home assessments, and they coordinate community public health and social services. And so based on these programs and other key, uh, interview informant, key informant interviews that we did, uh, we started to incorporate community health workers into our severe asthma clinic. And we called it the Community Approach to Severe Asthma, or CASA. Technically, we're probably seeing more moderate to severe asthma, um, but the acronym didn't have a quite nice ring to it as CASA. So um, we were able to use funds from the California Department of Public Health to, um, to be able to train and build um, a program where we utilized our own employees, radio employees, that are already doing community projects through the Center for Healthier Communities. And then we had further guidance from HUD's Healthy Homes and California EPA. And so we also looked at a specific population. We recruited pre-screened radiocapitated plan patients. And so these are patients where it's sort of an alternative payment plan where reducing utilization is actually incentivized. And because of that, it's also easier to track their utilization. Um, so there's a flowchart on the right that kind of shows what these CASA patients would go through. We'd see them in the severe asthma clinic. And then our social worker would help coordinate visits with our uh, home visits with the community health workers. At the home visits, they would be looking for triggers and for asthma and developing strategies to address those, reinforcing asthma education that we had given in the severe asthma clinic, and then um, 
connecting them to resources. And one of those resources is 211. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with 211. You might have heard about it during the Lilac fires where they actually um, help people link to like shelters and things during the fire. But they have a long history of connecting families with resources. And they actually developed a risk assessment tool that looked at 14 different domains of social determinants of health. And it was based in part on Healthy People 2020 strategies. And so we were able to use some funds that Radies had to address asthma to partner up with 211 and put them put um, 211 in contact with our CASA families and use this tool. And so they 211 was able to provide resources based on the risk assessment responses and follow up with families and monitor for reductions in risk. And so these programs have been running for a short amount of time, but we already have been seeing um, great outcomes. I would say. We've had about 57 patients who have been in the severe asthma clinic with a year of pre and post data that we can look at, and about 12 patients who have done a home visit. And you can see that um, in severe asthma clinic, we've had an almost 80% reduction in patients that have had two or more ED visits. The CASA program has even a greater drop, 90% in greater than two ED visits. In regards to hospitalizations, we have a significant decrease in um, hospitalization, greater than two hospitalization days in the severe asthma clinic here, 66%, and a greater drop in, uh, in hospitalization days for the CASA program, although it hasn't reached clinical uh, statistical significance. I would say given these trends, if we're able to continue the home visit program, we will reach statistical significance, and I think these results will become even more compelling over time. And so in regards to our partnership with um, 211, so we only had 12 patients that were referred to 211, but we were able to identify 88 different needs, or 211 was able to do this. And I mentioned that they looked at all kinds of domains, but the one that's most interesting to me and where we saw a huge effect was just in basic needs. And so you could see, I don't know if you can see, but um, this is food, um, housing, and shelter. Oh, wait, sorry, food, shelter, and um, being able to pay the bills. And so I can tell you that in the CASA population, while we were trying to get people to do a home visit, three of the patients were homeless. And so how do you schedule a home visit in someone that doesn't have a stable home? And more importantly, how can you, well, maybe not more importantly, but for this case, how can you have good asthma control if you don't have a stable home environment? And so I think it's one thing to be able to identify these needs. It's another thing to be able to do something about it. And 2-1-1 really stepped up there for us. You can see um, they didn't just give these families phone numbers and you call them and work it out. They actually walked them through application processes and checked in with them and made sure that they got these resources, including the ability to be able to um, have discount utility bills. They actually helped them find Section 8 housing um, and provided them with food resources like CalFresh. There's a whole host of other things that they were able to do that are important that we would never have time to do in the clinic. And so if we go back to our patient... We were able to see her in severe asthma clinic. She actually tested positive for dust mites. We recommended getting dust mite encasements given that it can trigger asthma attacks. And we were able to do a home visit with this family. And we found out that this family of four was living in a one-room studio and that where the patient and their parents slept was actually the same area as the kitchen. Um, And so we also found tobacco exposure in the father that wasn't declared in our severe asthma clinic visit on our intake forms. And we found that they didn't have any dust mite encasements because they couldn't afford it. And so we referred them to 211, and they did all kinds of stuff. I mentioned this kid was being bullied. They hooked them up with big brothers and big sisters who could provide mentoring to help them deal with that um, bullying and boost their confidence. They helped them find um, 
connect them with low-income housing units and assisted them on going through the application process to get on wait lists to get out of the studio apartment. And they were able to refer them for expedited CalFresh and got that approved and received ongoing assistance for almost $317 per month. And so when we look at the outcomes for this patient, we, they didn't have any further ED visits and no hospitalizations in the year following the Asthma Clinic visit and the CASA home visit. And so when there's so many interventions taking place, I, it's hard to say what individually may have helped. But we know for a fact that we were able to reduce some of the burdens on this family, and maybe that led to better asthma control. And so from this mid-city area, I'd like to move up to Oceanside, where I have a satellite clinic, and move from looking at social factors to more looking at environmental factors. And you can look at the asthma burden here. You can see it's not at the same level as Mid-City or Imperial Valley. And that's the case for most of the patients I see in my clinic. Um, that changed with the lilac fire that was in December of 2017. Um, I don't know if you remember the lilac fire. It wasn't that big. It's been raining all week, so maybe you're not thinking about fires very much. <laughs> <laughs> but it sparked December 7, 2017, and it lasted about a week. It was actually a pretty modest-sized fire, um, but it did cause the evacuation of 10,000 residents, and it cost about $9 million to contain and to clean up afterwards. And the interesting thing about the lilac fire, it was driven by Santa Ana winds, as are a lot of the fires that are in our region. And so Santa Ana winds are these regional phenomenon of gust, dry, gusty winds. They start as warm wind in the mountains. As they come towards the valley, they pick up speed, and they become hotter, and they blow through the coastline. And so I've grown up as a surfer, and whenever I heard about the Santa Ana winds, it meant that these offshore winds would hold the waves up and make for excellent surf. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to mention surfing in this talk. <laughs> but it is why I'm interested in it. <laughs> um, and so more recently, though, I've, been become, I've become more concerned about fires when I hear about Santa Ana winds. And so we know the damaging effects of fire, but there's also harmful substances in the, in the smoke, such as particulate matter that's smaller than 2.5 microns. And PM, it's, all, PM2, it's also known as PM2.5. So PM2.5, because it's so small, can be inhaled deeply into the lungs and cause inflammatory um, changes. And it's particularly dangerous for vulnerable populations like those with asthma. There was a study recently done in British Columbia where they also are dealing with fires frequently. And they found that they found a dose response to increases in PM2.5 with prescriptions for bronchodilators and asthma-related physician visits. And so I actually reached out to the Air Pollution Control District here in San Diego and asked for the air monitor data during the Lilac Fire all through the region during the time of the fire and in previous years. And so what's interesting is that if you look at the Camp Pendleton monitor, which is just south, which is downwind of the fire, you can see a pretty clear spike on December 7th and 8th associated with that fire. And this is looking at the month of December. Actually, it's one of the highest peaks in the entire year. There was a high peak on the 4th of July <laughs> from fireworks, but I didn't want to ruin the story. <laughs> So with that background, we'll go to our second case, which is a 10-year-old male who was seen in my Oceanside Satellite Clinic. And that kid was doing pretty well. His asthma was controlled on a medium-dose inhaled corticosteroids. He used albuterol just with exercise and when he got a cold. But on the second day of the fire, he went to school feeling fine and went out at recess and was running around and developed cough and wheeze. He ended up going to the nurse's office, getting treatment there, going home, symptoms didn't get better. And so he went to the urgent care, got a nebulized albuterol treatment and oral steroid course. And he got better. He missed a couple of days of school. Um, 
but he hadn't had utilization like that in years. And so this is actually a picture from the Lilac Fire. I've never seen palm trees on fire, <laughs> but it did quite a bit of damage. And you can see just the smoke that goes everywhere. And so I went back um, and looked at the administrative data that I showed earlier and um, went to see if we saw more respiratory visits um, during the time of the fire. And it's something that if you talk to the urgent care docs in Oceanside, they definitely felt like they saw more. So we wanted to see if that was what happened. And so we were able to demonstrate that there was uh, excess respiratory ED visits in all age groups that, you could, that could be associated with the time of the fire, an extra 16 visits per day. And that effect was largest in the very young, so zero to five-year-olds. And so you might argue that, well, if it was a bad respiratory viral season, maybe that's why you had more visits that year as, compo as compared to other years. And it was actually a pretty bad respiratory viral year in 2017. But I was able to work with Margaret Wynn in the emergency department, who's a whiz with GIS. <laughs> and we were able to find out where these respiratory visits were coming from. And so even though we are looking at um, the ED here at Radies, which is somewhere around here, a predominance of the visits came from the perimeter of the Lilac Fire in a south and almost west direction, exactly what you'd expect from Santa Ana wind-driven fires and harder to explain by just a bad respiratory viral season. And so if we go back to our patient, it makes you wonder that if, she, if um, he had stayed indoors or maybe limited his activity, he may not have had any issues. And so there are communities and schools that are praying, paying more attention to air quality and you can look at the air quality index online, um, the website's linked there, and look at it on a daily basis. And so there are communities and schools that look at the air quality index and then um, set out flags um, that correspond to that air quality level. And so, um, so starting with uh, the orange flag, you can see that children with asthma should have their asthma action plans available and they should have quick relief medication handy if they need it. And then as you move towards red and purple flags, all indoor activities should move indoors and outdoor activities should be postponed. I love this map. So, um, so, so in addition to looking at air quality locally, you can look at it as a snapshot of the entire country. And you can see here, the red area, um, that during the time of the fire, the lilac fire, that air quality was the poorest in the entire country. And those of you that are more astute will notice that this isn't San Diego, that this is actually Ventura and Los Angeles County during the Thomas Fire, which at the time was the largest fire in state history. One year later, just one year later, that fire has been replaced by the Complex Fire um, up in Northern California. And at that time, at the time of that fire, the region didn't have the worst air quality in the country. It had the worst air quality on the face of the planet. And so I've been able to work with researchers at Scripps Oceanography, and they do um, climate models based on precipitation patterns and wind patterns. And they have models that show that we're going to see more fires here in California in the coming decades. And so my takeaways from these climate fires in like the lilac fire, is that young children seem to be particularly sensitive to PM 2.5, and climate change models predict we're going to see more fires. And so if our population is going to continue to grow, 
it's possible that we're going to move closer to the urban wildland boundaries, and wildland boundaries are where we see a lot of these fires start. And so if we're going to do that, we need to be careful what materials we're using to build houses, and we need to think about the health risk for vulnerable populations. And so I don't have a crystal ball, but I think that we're going to be seeing more warning systems like the flag system I mentioned, and residential planning strategies and precautionary steps that, address, that are going to need to be addressed um, given the effects of climate change. And so from San Diego, I'm just going to move to our last region here, which is uh, Imperial County. And so Imperial County has the second highest rate of pediatric asthma ED visits in the state. It used to be number one. It's behind Fresno now. Fresno. But um, it, kind of, uh, it kind of alternates. It was number one a couple years ago. And I think it's both social factors and environmental factors that are playing a role in that asthma burden. So... You can see here by all the fields that there's a, it's a huge agricultural area. They actually provide two-thirds of all the vegetables to the entire United States during the wintertime. And they burn the fields when they change the crops, and that contributes to poor air quality. But also, geographically, it's south of the Salton Sea, which produces a lot of dust and decreases air quality. And it's north of the Mexican border with Mexicali. And Mexicali has a bunch of factories that produce air pollution because... Well, I don't know because, but they produce a bunch of air pollution, and their air quality standards are lower in Mexico than the U.S. I wouldn't boo Mexico. A lot of those factories are American factories. And so I have patients that come from Rades, and when they come over the hill and towards the valley, into the Imperial Valley, they can feel it in their lungs. I've heard that several times. That's not just a one-off story. So in addition to these environmental factors, we know there's social factors. It's one of the poorest counties in the entire country, and they have unemployment rates that are amongst the highest in the nation. And so that'll take us to our third case, which is a 16-year-old male from El Centro, which is in Imperial Valley. He's been life-flighted twice to our ICU here and intubated both times. The last time he was here, he was intubated for six days. Um, and his symptoms get worse in the fall when they burn the fields. And there's not a whole lot you can do about that other than stay inside. And he's actually a patient that we've been following for a while in our uh, main allergy clinic. And he drives here monthly to get asthma biologic injections. And you can see the trip that they're taking there and back. And we're a Monday to Friday operation, which means that he's missing school or his parents are missing work or whatever other responsibilities they have to come and see us. And I don't know if it's the same for other clinicians that deal with patients from the Imperial Valley, but my patients, are, they're always early. They're attentive during the visit they seem to be on board with the plan, and they seem to be adherent with the medication treatment plans. And so, and you know they've come this long distance to see you, and so it's really frustrating when you hear stories like this. And so we actually were able, he was, he'd been recently switched to dupilumab, and I'm not going to go through the mechanism of that medicine, um, but the thing to know about it is it actually can be administered at home. And so um, he may not need to come here monthly to get that injection, although we still probably want to follow him closely. And so that makes you wonder if that may be an opportunity for telemedicine. Telemedicine allows providers to treat patients in or near their home and reduce these unnecessary travel times and financial burdens. And so we actually have experience with telemedicine in City Heights. We have uh, La Maestra, who is a community clinic um, uh, that we've been able to partner with. And so Sonia Tucker, who's pictured here with an otoscope in her ear, um, was able to notice that uh, we that patients weren't following up in our clinics. And she did an internal survey which showed that they had identified financial and transportation barriers as the reason for that. 
And so they were able to get a hold of a telemedicine cart through grant funding. And they had a physician that was interested in doing telemedicine visits, with Dr. Javier Rodriguez, pictured here. Um, and so we began to start seeing patients on a monthly basis. So the patient would go to La Maestra, and um, I would be here at Radies on the computer remotely with a webcam, kind of like this person here. And so he could obtain the history in Spanish for our Spanish-speaking populations, and the stethoscope and the otoscope are attached to telemedicine cart so that when he listens to the chest, I can hear what he's hearing. When he looks in the ears or in the mouth, I can see what he's seeing. And so we come up with a plan together, and then he prescribes the medications on his side, and we follow up with the patient. And so we've seen about 25 patients, and they've filled out patient satisfaction forms. They've all kind of identified this decrease in transportation and costs, um, financial costs associated with coming to Radies. It's easier to go to City Heights. And so given that the distances are longer and the financial constraints are greater in the Imperial Valley, this seems like it would be a great idea for tele, uh, to do telemedicine visits with this patient and other similar patients. And so I'm working with Radio Telemedicine team to get telemedicine set up out there, and hopefully we'll see something in the next year or so. And so I'm going to come back to this Morton Bay fig tree that's in Balboa Park. I mentioned it was over 100 years old. It was actually having trouble growing at the end of the 80s and early 90s. And they brought in all kinds of specialists, and they tried cutting off some of the branches, they tried aerating the ground and using, using different fertilizers. And what it turned out was happening was that people were getting too close to the trunk to get under the shade of the tree, and they were trampling the vulnerable roots along the way. And so they put this big protective fence around the tree. And once they did that, the tree started flourishing again. And so that's a picture of my kiddos, just for size comparison. <laughs> and because I wanted to put a picture of my kids up here. And so you can kind of see that as a metaphor for how we treat our asthma patients. We have all kinds of new medications that I do think are going to help subsets of populations of our asthma population. But if we really want to see an improvement in decreasing asthma burden, we have to make sure that we protect the most vulnerable and address their needs. I don't know if necessarily put a fence around them, but <laughs> protect them. <laughs> um, so with that, this is my acknowledgement slide. Um, I've had help from a lot of people and a lot of different organizations. I absolutely have to shout out the Center for Healthier Communities with Phyllis Hardigan and Sherry Fiddler. Sherry recently um, uh, retired, um, but they've been huge advocates for the um, CASA program, and it really is a launching pad for all the other projects I've been involved with. I want to shout out the, I don't know if you say shout out, we'd like to thank <laughs> uh, our community health workers, Paola, Wendy, and VNA, who are tireless workers, but also deeply committed to their communities. And I think they're going to go on to do amazing things in healthcare. There's various people that have helped me at Radies and UCSD. And then a lot of these other organizations um, are important to sort of multi-sector collaborations. I look forward to doing more of these collaborations in the future. And at the end here is my colleagues, Margaret Wynn, Dr. Bob Gang, and Dr. Matea Cohen, who I think know that we are seeing improved outcomes, but they're seeing these patients in the clinic, face-to-face, boots on the ground, and they can tell that we're improving these patients' lives and the family lives. I also wanted to thank Sandra Leibel, who's my wife and seated in the second row, because <laughs> she told me to acknowledge her. <laughs> you are acknowledged. <laughs> and so with that, um, I'd like to conclude, and if you have any questions, I'm happy to take them. The question was, is there 
um, a reason why they can they can't stop burning the fields in um, in Imperial Valley to help improve the air quality. And um, I don't necessarily have an answer for that. I know that's the current way that they use to clear the fields um, when they change the crops from season to season. I don't know if there's a more effective manner that they could do that in. Um, but I can tell you there is a ton of programs that are interested in the Imperial Valley and are looking at ways to reduce asthma burden there. I've been involved in some of those. And they're looking for any ways to kind of reduce asthma burden and so I don't know if one of the reasons it went from number, two, number one to number two is some of these interventions, but um, I'm hoping that people, smart people are able to think about ways that we can um, address some of these environmental factors. Yeah, so absolutely, that's a tough one. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, the first question was kind of looking at um, the diets of our patients to see how that influences um, the development of asthma in different groups. Um, and I think there is definitely research that kind of looks at that. I kind of alluded to it as far as cultural practices. Um, and I'm actually particularly interested, along with my wife, in looking at uh, breastfeeding and the effects that that may have, especially related to the microbiome. Um, and so we definitely know that there's certain cultures, like uh, Mexican-American populations, that actually breastfeed more, and Puerto Rican populations breastfeed less. And so maybe that's something that plays a role. But I'm interested in, we've actually got um, IRB approval to start looking at, um, at some of these feeding patterns, what's fed um, during that perinatal period to see, look at social de- demographic groups and see if we see any changes. Um, but it's a really good question, the first one. And what was the, sorry, second question? No, question and ancestral exposure and protection. So yeah, that that so as far as the Amish population and the second population, I can't really Hutterites. Hutterites. <laughs> um, so that was a very interesting study. That um, so how does that impact asthma? Um, and so that was a really interesting interesting study that showed that the Amish population, who actually continued old farming practices and um, actually had protective effects against asthma, as opposed to the second group, who had more modern technology and they didn't have that protective effect. Um, so all kind of alluding to the hygiene hypothesis. Um, and so I definitely think there are ancestral um, components to it. But it's hard to tell. Like if it's, it's hard to tease it apart, I think, as far as is it because of their current exposures or a part of um, ancestral um, genes. And so I, I think um, it's something that needs to be looked at further. And, and I, uh, I definitely look forward to seeing those kind of outcomes over time. Thanks so much for presenting a difficult topic. I, I, I find asthma science really difficult because it's mostly association studies and it's really hard to sort of prove causality. Um, and, and I think one of the big challenges is trying to also find like studies that like show reversibility. Right? I mean, obviously with medications you can show reversibility, but with a lot of these environmental issues, there's you know, it's hard to show reversibility. With the exception of there has been recent literature looking at um, air pollution standards, particularly in California, where they've implemented these measures on, on road vehicles. And there has been improvements and reductions in respiratory illnesses, including asthma. So my question actually sort of goes back to this, the, your slides looking at geographics, particularly in the central like City Heights area. Did you look at proximity to, to highways and roads and sort of um, I mean, air quality, of course, can be affected by fires, but there's a chronic burden of uh, air quality just based on proximity to vehicles. So I'm wondering if you actually looked at that with, with the maps. 
Yeah, so that's a, a really good question as well. And um, so just to summarize that question, sort of um, what is the uh, role of environmental exposure, especially related to traffic and uh, air pollution um, at sort of local levels on the uh, development of asthma or, or the asthma burden that we're seeing? And so um, I mentioned that Cal Envirus Screens tool, which is a really good tool. Anyone can use it. And um, I didn't personally look at the traffic patterns, but they... Um, they were able to pull um, traffic patterns, truck routes, that sort of thing from Caltrans, and you can overlay them. And they actually also rank that per census tract to other census tracts. And so I did look at sort of tra- traffic patterns in City Heights, and you think that might be an issue. I mean, you have the, I think the 163 and the 5 there, there's high traffic routes there. But what's interesting is that wasn't as high a risk for them, or it wasn't as bad as other parts of the country, uh, the state at least. Um, as opposed to their other factors, like the poverty and, um, um, and violence exposure, that sort of thing. And what was interesting was actually Oceanside had one of the highest sort of markers for traffic pattern and um, those kind of exposures. It doesn't go into the details. I mean, I presume it's something to do with the freeway that goes through there and the fact that it's south of Camp Pendleton. Um, and so maybe that's contributing to it as well. But I'm really interested in that. There's a lot of good studies that come out of Orange County with Dr. Delfino, who's done a lot of traffic pattern research. Um, he recently retired, unfortunately, before I could um, work with him. <laughs> uh, but I do think that's really important, where we situate people and how that impacts sort of their, um, their asthma burden. Great time for one more question. Make it easy. <laughs> <laughs> So um, the question was, um, are we doing any kind of screening to look at the effects of stress and exposure to violence um, in our clinic? Um, and I guess the short answer is, is not really, um, other than our um, partnership with 211, where they kind of ask, I, I don't know how much they go into details, but they're able to at least provide resources based on that. And, um, but I definitely think that's an important thing. Uh, Mechanistically, there's been suggestion that exposure to stress and, and that epigenetic study that was looking at exposure to violence implicated the um, HPA access. So we know that's important in stress management. So I think it's really important um, and something that we do, do need to be able to, to look, at, look at more. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.